Hey, this is Pastor Matt from Missio Day Fellowship in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. I'm thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they're a way to encourage you in your walk with Christ. However, this sermon was given in the context of my local church and for those that God has entrusted to me. If you are in our area, I want to encourage you to come on a Sunday to worship with our body. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk with Christ, but no means a substitute for your local church. You need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible-teaching church and shepherd in your area. Well, please do open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. We are back in Luke chapter 6 this morning, and if I am doing my job faithfully over the next few weeks, uh, you're not really going to be getting my sermon, but rather you're going to be getting the sermon of our Lord. And the reason for that, if you've been with us, is because we've entered into this uh, tremendous section of the Gospel of Luke, which runs from verse 20 all the way through to the end of the chapter. And what we've been looking at essentially is an uninterrupted record of Jesus' own teaching. This is that famous Sermon on the Mount, and so we've officially finished uh, Luke's version of the Beatitudes, which is how the Sermon on the Mount in both Matthew and Luke begin. And so this morning we enter now into the central substance of this teaching. And so before we get into it, let me read for you verses 27 through 38, which is technically the complete unit although we'll only be setting the stage this morning with verses 27 and 28. We're just cranking through this gospel. So again, that's verse 27, and I'm going to read actually up through verse 38 just to set the scene. Here's what Jesus says. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. For if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Well, it's been a few weeks, but as I mentioned, we're now working through Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. And so just like Matthew's version, Luke uh, begins with a section known as the Beatitudes. And so what I told you was that the Beatitudes are essentially Jesus' formal introduction. They're the attention getter, so to speak. They're supposed to capture the attention of the audience. And so what made the Beatitudes so provocative 
for the average person who would have been listening is that they're so backwards to what would have been understood as conventional wisdom. And so he begins by saying essentially that you are blessed, notice verse 20, if you are poor, hungry, weeping, and persecuted, and yet at the same time, verses 24 through 26, you are cursed if you are rich, full, happy, and accepted. And so that, of course, begs the question, um, since when is being poor, hungry, sad, and persecuted a good thing or a blessing, and since when is being rich, full, happy, and accepted a bad thing or a curse, typified in this term here of woe. And so this just strikes against the heart of everything that these Jews would have thought the Old Testament was teaching concerning the nation of Israel. And because remember, there were all kinds of blessings that were built into obedience that resulted in tremendous prosperity, which of course meant that the curses or the woes were the result of disobedience. And so Jesus here now comes along and completely turns that conventional wisdom on its head, or at least seemingly turns it on its head. And so what I pointed out for you was that these categories here had nothing to do with physical realities or physical circumstances. In other words, that is not to say that the blessed are the ones who are physically poor or physically hungry or physically weeping or physically persecuted necessarily. Rather, every single one of these has to do with the inward disposition of the heart, which is why, by the way, again, these are called the beatitudes. These are to be the attitudes or conditions of a person's heart. And so what we learned was that these beatitudes are a description of how the saved sinner views themselves. That's what the Beatitudes are. That is to say that they are poor, but they are poor of spirit, as Matthew says. That is, they understand the impoverished state of their soul, that they're a sinner before a holy God, that they are bankrupt of soul, so to speak, and so they've got nothing to offer. These are ones who understand that God is holy, and yet they are sinful. And so there's nothing they can do to solve that eternal problem, and so they have nothing to offer God to save themselves, and so they are bankrupt of spirit. And so as a result of that, the next one is that they hunger, verse 21, or they hunger and they thirst for righteousness, as Matthew phrases it. And so understanding now the bankruptcy of their own spiritual condition, they now long, they now hunger for righteousness. They hunger to be made righteous. They understand their sin. They understand God's holiness. And so they thirst now to become like him in that sense. And so they're poor, they're hungry, which of course then leads to this third category, which is that they weep. And I'm just doing a quick review here. But what we saw with this third one, with this idea of weeping, was that this is a person who now grieves over the state of their sin. They understand that they have offended an infinitely holy God. And so they understand the wicked state of their own heart. And so they grieve, they mourn over the offense committed. And so as we saw, this is much like what Paul talks about, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, where there is that worldly sorrow, as he phrases it, that leads to death, and primarily because it's a sorrow over the fact that they've been caught, or it's a sorrow over the consequences of sin, but it's not necessarily a grief over the sin itself. And that is a very critical distinction to understand. Even the most wicked a person grieves over the consequences of sin, right? But that is not a sorrow that leads necessarily to a true repentance. And therefore, as Paul says, salvation. 
In fact, as we talked about, nobody, if they're being honest with you, wants to endure an eternity of hell as a consequence of sin. But what I wanted you to understand is that not wanting hell is very different than thirsting for righteousness. It's very different. And so a true sorrow or a godly sorrow, as Paul puts it, is the kind of sorrow that's not so much concerned over the consequences of sin as much as the sin itself. They understand the gravity of sin. They understand its ungodly or unholy nature. And so they genuinely grieve over that offense committed against a righteous creator. And so this is that godly sorrow or sorrow that leads to repentance, to a change of mind is what repentance means, to a change of life in which they no longer desire to live for sin and self, but instead to live for God and the glory of Jesus Christ. And so these were the first three qualities or three marks of the saved sinner. In fact, remember the Sermon on the Mount has nothing to do with how to, quote, get saved, but everything to do with revealing who is already saved. In fact, the entire sermon is all about the distinguishing marks of a genuinely converted soul. And so in the case of the first three Beatitudes here, these are the marks which reveal, to put it in just some plain terms, who is in and who is out, so to speak. And so you don't try to make yourself poor, make yourself hungry, or make yourself sad, or go and find persecution in order to get into the kingdom, but rather the poor, the hungry, and the sad of spirit are the signs that you are already in. They are the signs of the marks that you are blessed or among God's redeemed, so to speak. And so these are the signs that you indeed possess a truly converted heart. In fact, notice these are the ones who will inherit the kingdom, end of verse 20. And again, notice, please, the present tense of that verb, for yours is, that is present tense right now, for yours is the kingdom of God. And so again, these are not things you do to, or try to do to try and achieve in order to be counted worthy of the kingdom, but rather these are how the saved sinner views themselves. They understand the poverty of their soul, they hunger to be made righteous, and they weep over the condition of their own sinfulness. And that is always the state of the saved sinner. That is the heart condition of a converted soul. They, they don't fight, they don't negotiate, they no longer seek to try and justify their own sinfulness, but rather they see it for what it is and therefore hunger for something to be done about it. Which is why Jesus Christ is, of course, so precious to the true Christian they understand that in the cross and the resurrection, he dealt with that issue of sin and he literally bore the penalty for sin in his own body on behalf of the sinner. In fact, remember, this is a section which Jesus is now teaching on the nature of true discipleship and what it's going to mean to truly follow after him. Prior to this, we just finished that section in which we saw three accounts of Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees or that group of religious authorities who were so incredibly self-righteous and because they thought that salvation was an issue of legalistic religious law-keeping. And so now immediately after that, Luke records Jesus selecting his 12 disciples and then begins this great teaching on the nature of true discipleship, which is, again, what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. And so in contrast to those who are self-righteous or they can't see or they can't understand 
their own sin. Jesus here says that those who are truly of the kingdom of God understand in a very intimate way the condition of their sinful soul. In fact, that is the prerequisite to all true salvation. We saw that embodied in that account with the leper. That is the prerequisite and therefore the evidence of a truly redeemed or blessed person. A sinner must see their sin. And so in light of that, we came then to this fourth beatitude in verses 22 through 23, which was that now willingness to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, we saw that this was the preeminent mark of a truly converted soul. In fact, it was the evidence that the work of the first three had been done. If you remember, he gives only half a verse to the first three marks there, but then notice two whole verses to that final one alone, verses 22 and 23. And so to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ is one of the greatest evidence of your salvation. They follow their Lord in that. This kind of person models his experience. And so it is one of the most demonstrable pieces of assurance that you could possibly possess. And so to suffer for the name of Christ, as we saw, was ironically to be in the best of all possible places. It is without question the highest sign that you are among the blessed. And I won't develop all that again because I give an entire sermon to just those two verses alone, but it is very important. It's very critical to understand that concept. And so if you you miss that one, then I encourage you to go back and listen to it because the willingness to suffer for the name or the cause of Christ is an immense portion of the Christian's calling. Part of what it means to follow Jesus is being willing to follow him down that Calvary road, which was the road in the gospels of Jesus' suffering. The Christian life is a life of hostility. It's a life of persecution to varying degrees. Again, we live in a bubble that's starting to be popped in this country. And so if you're not ready to suffer or don't understand the place of suffering in the Christian's life, then perseverance until the end will be impossible for you. And that is just a truth all throughout the scriptures in terms of God's people. And so there's much that he is going to say on the nature of suffering. But as he begins this important sermon here in chapter six, he begins with a statement that shows forth an attitude of the heart that necessarily accompanies a truly converted heart. Namely, this willingness and and even joy, as we saw, at the opportunity to suffer for the cause of Christ. Again, such a backwards perspective to the rest of the world. And then last time we looked at verses 24 through 26, which show the four opposite traits or the four traits that you evidence an unconverted soul. I think I titled it something like four signs that you're unredeemed. It was very happy, very uplifting sermon. I know that, but they were the words of our Lord nevertheless. And so it is a very important passage. And so with verses 20 through 26, we saw essentially, again, that introduction to Jesus' sermon. And this sermon goes all the way through to the end of chapter 6. And so with that as his intro, we come now to the substance and main teaching of his sermon. This is now going to be his sermon proper. The introduction is now over, and so we enter into the main content of this remarkable teaching. And so with that as some review for you, we come now to verses 27 through 28 this morning, in which Jesus is now going to give his very first commands 
in all of the Gospel of Luke. Now, in order to understand what's going on here, I have to clue you into the structure of this passage. And so remember, the first three Beatitudes are how the saved sinner views themselves. And then that fourth one, namely that attitude of persecution or being willing to suffer or willing to endure hostility for the name of Christ is now the evidence that the first three are true for you. And so what Jesus is going to do now through verse 38 is essentially develop that final beatitude. Remember, he gave only a half a verse to the first three, and then he gave two full verses to this final attribute of suffering. And so what he's going to do now is fundamentally build off of that concept since suffering, as I said, is the preeminent mark of a true disciple. And so make no mistake on this. The distinguishing characteristic that your heart has been truly changed is that of your willingness to suffer. And because who in their right mind, if you think about it, who in their right mind would be willing to suffer and endure hostility or perhaps even be killed for something they don't really believe? And so this is what Christ now develops. And yet what's important to understand here is we're going to see is that discipleship is far more, it is far more than simply persecution. And persecution, again, make no mistake, is a promise. Suffering is promised by Christ for those who would take up their cross and follow him. We know this, but the willingness to suffer is not all that must define you. Rather, what Jesus is going to now develop is what a true disciple will actually do, but in the face of that suffering. And so it is one thing to suffer for Jesus. It is one thing even to be willing to suffer for Jesus. But what is of utmost importance is how you respond in the midst of that suffering. In other words, what becomes here of ultimate importance is how you respond to your persecutor. That is what this section is about. That is the question, and that is what is a primary concern for Jesus. And again, why? Well, because depending on how you respond necessarily reveals if you are truly among the blessed. And so verses 20 through 26 is how a saved person views themselves. Then verses 27 through 38 is essentially how a saved person views others. And especially how a saved person views their enemy, which in the context, as we're going to see, is defined as your persecutor. And this is so important because as you treat your enemy, or again, in the context of persecutor, that will reveal whether you're truly following the ways of Jesus Christ, and therefore whether or not you're a true disciple. And because if you're, if you're truly following Jesus, then hear this, that it means that you must follow him and follow his example, not only in his sufferings, but in how he suffered. Very critical. And so in light of that, what you have in verses 27 through 38 is the distinguishing preeminent mark that is above all other marks, and because it's what typified the person of Jesus Christ, which of course, as we're about to see, is nothing less than that all-important attribute of love. And so the majority of the Sermon on the Mount, if you didn't know, could essentially be characterized as a sermon about love. That is to say, though, it is a sermon revealing the nature of true love, In other words, love in terms of how God defines love. 
And because God is love, and so love is therefore the overflow, his very essence of his very being. Love is what exemplified, it's what characterized, it is what drove and motivated Jesus' being and very mission. And so what we'll set our minds to over the next few weeks here, Lord willing, is this very important theme and eternally critical quality of true love. In fact, as I mentioned, this is the first time that we see Jesus issue a command in the gospel of Luke, and he comes flying out of the gate with 15 imperatives or commands, and every single one of them flowing from this preeminent command of love. In fact, the title of my sermon this morning is Love Commanded, and because in verses 27 and 28, which is what we're going to spend our time in this morning, we see four commands here that detail what true love is to be. And so over the next few weeks, and as we continue through verse 38 here, we're going to see him develop this idea of love in greater detail, and much of which is explained through a series of commands. And so the passages themselves are going to be rather straightforward, at least in terms of understanding the meaning of the text. But I think what's going to be challenging for us is that, while it's rather simple to understand, this is also one of those topics that becomes incredibly difficult to do. In fact, R.C. Sproul coined this passage to be perhaps the most difficult in all of the Gospel of Luke, and not because it's difficult to understand, but because it's tremendously difficult to live. And so there are many things that Christians are known for. Some are good, some are bad. Maybe it's a form of politics, maybe it's a certain kind of social action, depending even upon which tribe of Christianity you identify with. You might be known for certain things to a greater or lesser degree or certain perspective on things, and therefore what you choose to do or what you choose not to do. But regardless, the greatest hallmark of the true Christian, regardless of denominational theological perspective, always must be love. And love, not as the world defines it, but love as Jesus and the scriptures define it. In fact, this is such a difficult doctrine to talk about because it's so multifaceted and deals with perhaps what is the most prominent and definitive mark of who and what God is that is somewhat intimidating to even talk about. What makes it increasingly complicated in our day, at least as far as we're concerned, is that Jesus' definition of love and therefore the biblical definition of love is consistently under assault from the culture and from how the world defines love. In fact, in a similar way, this is what's making the discussion right now on justice or or social justice so confusing within the church. Justice for whatever that means, at the end of the day, is a biblical term. And so if you can hijack a Bible word, Christians all of a sudden become very confused, right? And so as I've argued elsewhere, what's being called justice right now, or specifically social justice, is not anything even close to true biblical justice when you actually examine the biblical texts, but because the conversation involves a Bible word, Many in the church have become confused. And so since Christians don't want to be viewed as unjust, because that would be contrary to what Christians are supposed to stand for and what they're supposed to be, they comply then with some new 
culturally defined form of justice. Forgetting, though, that any definition of Scripture must be developed out of the text of Scripture alone. And so when you place a definition over the text instead of developing it from the text, you get confusion. Well, in a similar way, the same thing has taken place a long time ago, as you know, but with the entire concept of love. And so what you do is you take a biblical term like love and you redefine it in accord to cultural standards and then demand that Christians now comply with a newly defined concept of love. And then when they don't buy into it, because it's not how the Bible actually speaks about it, you then shame the Christian as hypocritical because they're not living in accord to how the world has now demanded love be understood. Despite the fact you're talking about two completely different definitions. In fact, since the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, there have been competing ideas and definitions of love that have so distorted the true nature of biblical love that when it comes to the topic of Christian love or what Jesus is actually calling us into, there are many self-identifying Christians, you know this, that have come to virtually the opposite conclusion of what Jesus actually taught. It's very bizarre. In fact, there are many who identify as a Christian in some form who have spent their life so under the influence of the world's culture that it's nearly impossible for them to reconcile their definition of love with what the Bible actually teaches. And so when they come into conflict with each other, the world and culture wins. And so while much of the world, at least in our day, now calls evil good and good evil, where they identify love as hate and hate as love, and where feelings, tolerance, acceptance, and affirmation are somehow the way of Jesus, and yet truth, objectivity, and definitive statements from Christ's own teaching is somehow ironically anti-Christian, this has become a very confused and very difficult topic to talk about. And yet what is so helpful is that when you simply slow down and examine the actual words of the biblical text, line by line, word by word, the true concept of love becomes inescapably clear. It is simple, it is straightforward. And so when you slow down and you actually look at the text, what you begin to discover is that the difficult doctrine of the love of God is not actually all that difficult to understand, but just incredibly difficult to accept and live. And that is where the rub always comes in. In fact, if you think about it, to be commanded to do one thing necessarily implies that you are forbidden to do another, right? And so in a day in which love means freedom to think, freedom to pursue, and freedom to act in a manner that maximizes your own personal pleasures, and because we're drowning in a culture that preaches self-love, the teaching of Jesus all of a sudden becomes incredibly unpopular. And yet, as we're going to see over the next few weeks, Jesus' teaching on love is actually the purest expression of love. And because it is a call to model the very essence of what God himself is, which is love. In fact, if you didn't know 
Love is actually a distinctively unique Christian doctrine. There is no religion that has love as a tenant of their faith. Don't know if you knew that. I was telling our Wednesday night Bible study about this a few weeks ago, but many don't know that love is a uniquely Christian attribute and because it is the outworking of the essential nature of the person of God. And when I say the word essential, that's a technical word in theology to speak of God's essence, his being. In other words, love is not merely something that God does, but when you strip it all the way, love is actually what God is. That is to say that it's part of his essence. It's part of his essential nature. And so it's what makes up, therefore, his being. In fact, we're all familiar with that statement in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8 that God is love, right? He says, the one who does not love does not know God. And why? Well, for God is love. And so to use the fancy word for a moment, just stick with me if you can, that is an ontological statement. That is to say, it's part of his ontology. It's part of his essence, his being. It's what makes God, in other words, God. And so again, God doesn't merely show love or do love, but he is love. It is his essence. Love is his inherent nature. And so God is not love because he does some loving things, but rather he can't not love because by his very essence and nature, he is love. And so in that sense, whatever God does is love. Love is what he produces. He is perfectly consistent with his essential nature. And so it is impossible for God not to love and because he cannot act contrary to what he is. You see. And so I say that the idea of love is a distinctly unique doctrine of the Christian faith alone because there is no other God in any other religion whose essential nature or essential being is love. In fact, this is why a proper understanding of the Trinity is so critical to the Christian life. It is not just theology or abstract ideas, but has real life implications. In fact, my old uh, professor, D.A. Carson, was very helpful for me on this. He wrote a book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, in which he brings some of this out. I would commend it to any of you. It's a short book. It's very technical, but worth your time to wade through. And so let me do a little bit of theology with you for a moment. It's going to be a little bit technical, but try and hang in there. In Islam, for example, and the Muslim faith, God, who is Allah, which is just the Arabic word for God, God or Allah is said to be one. And so if you read the Quran carefully, then you'll discover that for all of eternity, there was Allah, there was God. He was beneficent. He was sovereign. He was merciful. He was providential. And yet what's interesting is that it's nearly impossible to find any word of God or Allah in the Quran as in some way being loving. 
Now, part of that, of course, is due to the Muslim understanding of what God is and his sort of essential nature that is, again, in his essence or his being. And so in Muslim thought, if you didn't know, God is, and just stick with me, God is considered to be simplex. That is to say that God is one. He is eternally one. In other words, from eternally past, there was always God. There was always Allah, and this God was one. He was one in and of himself. He is simplex. And so the question therefore becomes, how then could he love if there was, first of all, nothing yet created outside of him to be an object or a recipient of his love, but far more importantly, and hear this, how could he love if there was, not, if there was nothing within him to love? And so you ask, well, what do you mean by that? How could there be nothing in him to love? Well, think about it. In eternity past, according to the gospel of John, while the true God of creation is indeed one, the scriptures simultaneously insist that the father was in the state of eternally loving the son. And that the son was in the state of eternally loving the father. And why is that the case? Well, because the true God of the scriptures is not simplex, but rather in his oneness, he is complex. That is to say that he is, by his very essence, one, yet three. You see? And so built into the very essence or nature of this one God, and this is the point, there was always other. And so this is the reason, therefore, as Carson states, that it's even possible to speak of this one God as a God of love. He doesn't just do love to something outside of him, for how could he have loved if there was not yet anything created to be an object or a recipient of this love, but rather he is within that intra-Trinitarian relationship in the state of loving There was always love eternally flowing and being received among the three persons of this one Trinitarian Godhead. And so that if God is not Trinity, he is not love. And so this is why, even though it is not a popular statement to make, Islam is not a religion essentially of love. And why? Well, because the God of Islam is not essentially, that is, by his very essence and being within him, able to love. If God is not three, that is, Father, Son, and Spirit eternally existing contemporaneously, that is, all at the same time for all of eternity, then love cannot be shown, cannot be given, and cannot be received. It is not part of his inner essence. And which is why, therefore, love then becomes a uniquely Christian doctrine and why love must be defined, therefore, by the Bible alone. I 
In fact, when we get love right, then we mirror that eternal love that has always existed among the three persons of the Godhead and thereby reflect the very essence or quality of God himself. And so this all of a sudden becomes such an important passage because it is such a critical doctrine. For it is the essence of God. And so if you love in a manner consistent with the love of the eternal God, then this is why I say that it is the preeminent mark that you truly belong to him. But if you don't love, and you don't love in accord to truth or true love that's consistent with the true God of the universe, and as he has defined it, because it's an overflow of him, first of all, it is not love, though many people call unloving things love, but it's also the evidence that you're not truly among the blessed. Why? Because you're not of him. And so a soul which has been converted by the God of the universe through the work of the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, In other words, the fullness of that Trinitarian Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, a soul that's been converted by him where he takes up residence within you, then you can't not reflect, therefore, the very quality and character of him, which is love. And so when it comes to Luke chapter 6, it is difficult for me to overstate the importance of what we're going to be seeing here over the next few weeks And no wonder, therefore, why the Sermon on the Mount is perhaps the greatest teaching of Christ in all of the Gospels. For without love, there is no evidence of conversion. And without love, there is no evidence of God's presence in you. And so to love, while certainly not earning salvation for you, is without question the highest mark of the life of God in the soul of a person. Love is that distinguishing feature which sets the Christian apart from the world. The world cannot love. It cannot act in a manner consistent with something that is not in them. And so when the world tries to define for you or tell you what love is, they speak falsehood. For truth is not in them. It cannot speak of that which it does not know. And so with that, let's take a look now at verses 27 through 28, which sets the scene. And we're not going to spend too much time developing this this morning because the rest of the chapter is essentially going to develop it for us. And so we're just going to briefly touch on this this morning. What I did was just introduction, Um, but this will go quick, I think. Again, in many ways, this is very simple. It's very straightforward. Remember, love is, it's not a feeling. It's, it's a command. You know this. It's not something we're to feel necessarily, but rather it's something we're to do. Love is always a verb. That is, it's an action word. And so in the context here, love is concerned primarily with how a Christian's to respond to their persecutor when they suffer for the cause of Christ. And why is that the case? Well, because it is perhaps the most difficult place to show love. And yet if that is when love comes forth from you, then that is the evidence of a changed heart most manifest. 
Now, of course, we talk about loving our enemies in the church all the time, but the context of what's actually meant by that is how you choose to respond to a person who hates you, but as a result of Jesus Christ. And so this isn't talking about an enemy just on any given issue, but rather this is about enemies, essentially, of the gospel. And so again, love, however you may define it, is never just the idea of accepting a person for what they want to be accepted for. That is not love. Love is not merely support for whatever a person desires to do. Love is not encouraging negligence or sinfulness or disobedience or anti-biblical wickedness. Love is not letting people live however they want to live. It's not letting them do whatever they want to do. It's certainly not letting them say whatever they want to say. Love is not a synonym in the scriptures anywhere for freedom. Love is not helping people pursue autonomous expressions of self or unbounded pleasure. Rather, love, as we're going to see, is, here's my definition, seeking another person's good as God has defined good but especially when a person does not deserve it, and particularly when you get nothing in return for it. And so that is exactly what we will see develop throughout the rest of this chapter. Again, love is seeking another person's good as God has defined good, but especially when a person does not deserve it, and particularly when you get nothing in return for it. And so again, with all of that as my introduction for my sermon this morning, let's take a look at the text, verse 27. And again, I promise it'll go quick. Probably shouldn't use that word of promise. It's actually very straightforward, very simple. Notice you've got four commands to love. So you've got love, do good, bless, and pray, all of which embody that single command or concept of love. And then you've got four objects or recipients of this love, namely those who are your enemies, those who hate you, those who curse you, and those who mistreat you. And of course, all those characterize a single kind of person, namely one who persecutes you for following Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to do is just let those four commands control the rest of our time this morning here. And again, I think it'll go quickly. I'm just going to give a high fly over this um, because this is what we're going to be developing essentially through the rest of verse 38 in coming weeks. And so first of all, notice how he begins in verse 27. And again, verses 27 are simply a summary of everything here that's to come, which is why we're just going to touch on these things. I just want to put this idea of love on your plate. I want to get it on your radar. And so I'm not going to be saying anything too profound this morning, but notice, notice first of all, whom he addresses, verse 27. He says, but I say to you who hear, very key, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Now, first of all, notice the strong adversative or contrast here. So he just got done issuing out those woes in verses 24 through 26, but then he contrasts that with the true Christians starting here in verse 27. And so in verse 27, when he begins with that very strong adversative. It's a very strong adversative in the Greek. It's translated here as but. Um, What he's doing is he's setting up some very definitive lines. In fact, remember that Jesus is teaching here to a, a very large crowd. It's a very mixed crowd. Some are very intimate followers at this point, like the 12 whom he just chose. We saw that. Remember, some are more neutral followers. They're not necessarily overtly rejecting Jesus, but they're not necessarily yet following him at this point. 
And then some are here just out of mere curiosity. Remember, he's, he's experiencing some t- tremendous celebrity status at this point. His fame just keeps increasing throughout the land and primarily as a result of his miracles and his healings. In fact, remember verse 17, he records that many are coming from all over the place and coming from quite a distance. And again, they're there primarily for those healings or there for those miracles. They're there to see these signs and wonders. They want to see if the, the rumors are true, but then typical of Jesus, he just uses this as an opportunity to teach. And so what he does is he launches into this great sermon on the Mount where he's now going to define what a true disciple is to look like. And they're not ones enamored with miracles. They're not ones following after the signs and the wonders, following Jesus for what he can give to them, namely health, wealth, or prosperity, but rather according to verse 20, 46, notice a true disciple is one who obeys his teaching. And primarily the teaching that he's about to give in this very important sermon. And so this phrase here of, but I say to you who hear is, is a very important phrase. You'll see it elsewhere written sometimes as let him who has ears hear or... Um, Sometimes he references those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. It's always a concept in the gospels in reference to the one who's listening, but for the purpose of obeying. That is key. It is always the one who listens, but for the purpose of obeying. And so just because you're listening, that doesn't mean necessarily that you're listening to obey. And so Jesus understands this. He understands that he's among a very mixed crowd. Some will hear, some will ignore, some will even respond in hatred, as we saw in chapter four, where they actually seek to try and kill him for his words. And yet here, he's only concerned with notice those who would be his true disciples. That is those who have ears to hear. In fact, just so you know, that is how we teach at this church. We understand that there's potentially a mixed group here on any given Sunday. And yet my only concern is to make certain that I faithfully relay the words of the Lord to those who are truly his. Churches, unfortunately, seem to be preoccupied these days with trying to attract, trying to fill up seats with unbelievers. But my primary audience is always the believer. You are the church. Now, I know that unbelievers are always among us and they're certainly welcome. It's certainly my great desire to see many come to faith. I know that's true for many of you as well. But as a point of ministry, I'm not so much interested in a crowd. I'm not really interested in teaching a message that sells. I'm not interested in teaching a message that garners popularity. Rather, I'm interested only in faithfully instructing those who by the power of the Spirit have ears for the Word of God. And because that is my responsibility before the Lord, and that is exactly, notice, what Jesus does here on the side of this mountain. And so he's now just finished his introduction. He launches into the substance of this sermon and begins with four commands, and all of which encapsulate this very important concept of true love. And so with that, notice the commands, verses 27 and 28. The first says, in no mixed terms, number one, love your enemies. So we are to love our enemies. Now, this is basically the command in its plainest and most general sense. In fact, you could understand this first one as the posture of any true Christian. We are to have a posture or a disposition of love. That is to be our character. That is what is to define us. And so with 
the broad command here of love your enemies, you've essentially got the entire point of the greater section all the way through verse 38 in a single sentence. Now, again, the enemies in the context here are those who bring a uh, a persecution, but on account of the name of Christ. These are those who notice, according to verse 22, are those who hate you and ostracize you and insult you and spurn your name as evil. Why? For the sake or on account of the Son of Man. And so, again, you can go back and listen to that sermon to get a fuller development of that. But these are those who will essentially cut you off because of your devotion to Jesus Christ. And primarily, if you remember, coming from those closest to you, Remember Matthew chapter 10, Jesus defines these people as your own family. Chapter 10, verse 36, for a man's enemies shall be, so not maybe be or potentially be, but shall be the members of his own household. And so you should expect persecution primarily from those closest to you. Now, persecution in a more general sense can come anywhere from family to the culture to government. And so the idea of enemies here, it's, it's the term ekthros, which just means hostile. And so it's simply a catch-all for any who'd bring hostility, any who would oppress you on account of your devotion to Jesus Christ. And so these are those that Jesus has in mind when he says enemies. We are to love those who bring hostility to us on account of Jesus Christ. And so these are not political enemies. These are not relational enemies. These aren't enemies in business. These aren't geopolitical enemies. These certainly aren't persons harassing you as you drive down the highway. Um, Those are not the enemies that he has in mind. Rather, the hostility here, notice, is a direct result of the gospel. Verse 22, for the sake of the Son of Man. And so what it means to love that kind of person is what we're going to see develop as we go along here over the next few weeks, Lord willing, but just understand that the focus of Christian love in this case is toward those explicit enemies of the cross. That is the enemy. And so for all the talk of of loving your neighbors these days, just, just understand that we're going to see those kinds of statements in their true context. There's a very explicit context in which neighbor is defined for us and therefore what loving them actually looks like. And so in the immediate context here, again, his his great concern is, is love for the enemy, sometimes defined as neighbor and primarily because love for enemy is what must accompany all true faithful gospel witness. In fact, love is how an unbelieving world will be able to accept the gospel. And primarily because love for enemies, the essence of what it means to be like God. Remember, it's while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. While we were yet hostile in mind or alienated, he reconciled us to himself, Colossians chapter one. In fact, he's gonna go on here in a little bit to say that Christ's likeness is not really seen in love for those who treat you well, that's what the world does. That's what the world thrives upon. But what's uniquely Christian and therefore true love, hear this, is seeking the good of the one who is actively opposed to you in trying to bring you harm. And so Christian love, just like the Beatitudes, is very backwards. It's very unlike what's normal in the world. 
And so the first command here, which is to love your enemies, is, is simply a catch-all command, which is what must define the general attitude of any follower of Jesus Christ. The Christian is to be marked by love for enemy, and especially when they oppose you, and particularly when it comes on the count of the name of Jesus Christ. And again, he develops that later in the chapter, and we'll see that in greater detail. But then notice the second one, second half of verse 27. He says, and do good to those who hate you. Do good, it's the key verb, to those who hate you. So the first one of love is just that broad overarching command. Love's to be our inner attitude. It's to be our general posture toward those who would hate us because of the gospel. But then the second one here builds on that a little bit by describing how love is an actual action. Love is something that is always to manifest itself in very tangible service. And so as he says here, love, notice, does good. And so love is something that acts always. Words are cheap. Love acts. Again, love is a verb. It's not primarily a a feeling. In fact, next time we're going to see him develop this one a little bit, and he's going to show how the essence of love is a life of consistently choosing to die to self. In fact, you cannot love as Christ loved and as you're called to if you don't learn that very critical concept. Love is always motivated by another person's good and even if it costs you something. In fact, that is the essence of God's love for the sinner. It cost him his very own son, Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, but God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John 15 and verse 3, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for another. And so true love seeks another's good, even though it costs them. It might cost you reputation, might cost you your money, might cost you your family relationships. If you're properly loving your husband or your wife or your children and truly seeking their good, it might cost the Christian sometimes even life itself. The true love is motivated always not by personal gain or being accepted, but always by seeking another's good. In fact, notice again the object of this service. It is toward those who hate you. So again, he's going to develop that explicitly next time. But the point here to understand is that love is not necessarily just a willingness to love, nor is it simply not giving vengeance in return for someone who brings you harm, but true love goes way beyond that to then seek the good of the enemy. In fact, notice in verse 27, Jesus says, but I say to you, that is an expression that you will see in the gospels whenever Jesus is contrasting his teaching with the common teaching of the day, that is the teaching that was taught by the rabbis or, or other authoritative teachers in Israel. And so there's, there's a great contrast going on here that his audience most certainly would have picked up on. In fact, the Essenes, who were that, that group of religious Jews from which John the Baptist came, remember they were those ascetics, they were those monks who had isolated themselves in the wilderness because they were trying to remain unstained from the corruption of the rest of the nation. And the problem, of course, is that they, they just brought their sin with them. But they have their 
the writings, in the writing statements like this, for example, they say, love all that God has chosen, but hate all he has rejected. Or in another place, they write, love all the sons of light and hate all the sons of darkness. And so that was their moral or religious code. In fact, they were required actually to curse all that was non-essening. In other words, they were to hate the Pharisee, they were to hate the Sadducee, they were to hate the religious zealot, they were to hate just your average Jew, hate essentially anyone who wasn't an Essene, and so they were to love the Essene, but hate the non-Essene. Pharisees weren't all that much better. One of their maxims was, if a Jew sees a Gentile, that is a non-Jew, fallen into the sea, let him by no means lift him out of there. Why? For it is written, thou shalt not rise up against the blood of thy neighbor, but this man is not thy neighbor. There's no reason to show love to a Gentile. In fact, in other places, we see that it was, in fact, considered to be a sin to love the enemy, one who was not among God's people. In fact, we see this kind of perspective in most politics today, do we not? If you're not on a certain side, you're to therefore be against the other. They are the enemy. They are the cancer to your life and society. Well, this is exactly what was going on in first century religious Judaism, and it was the prevailing religious thought. So Jesus here comes along and completely flips it on his head and says, not only are you not to pursue vengeance toward your enemy, that is hate them, but you are to now actively seek their good. That is so difficult. In fact, Paul picks this up in Romans chapter 12 and verse 17, when he says, never pay back evil to evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own vengeance or revenge, beloved. Leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And so if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil. How? With good. With good. And so in a culture that said pursuing vengeance was the just, the just, that's, that is righteous, Pursuing vengeance in a legal sense, that is the just and right thing to do. Jesus says it is forbidden. This is forbidden of the Christian. Rather, the Christian is always to seek the good of their enemy. In fact, the term here for good is kalos, which is the idea of an inherent good that is not just a kind of superficial good. That is, it's, it's a real, it's a tangible kind of service that actually uh, results in the prosperity of somebody. So it's the idea of actively doing something that brings a redeeming or a lasting quality or lasting kind of goodness. 
In other words, you do for them that which can result, in other words, in their eternal salvation. In fact, in the context of Paul, it's, it's asking the question of, so what do I need to do for my enemy in order to gain an entrance or an openness for the gospel? That is the question. How do I act? How do I serve? How do I self-sacrifice perhaps and in such a way so as to find every possible means to overcome evil or overcome their hostility toward me with good? That is the question, and that is what is at the heart of Jesus' teaching. And so just keep that in mind as we work through this chapter. But then number three, notice he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless those who persecute you. Now, this one has to do with your speech. In fact, that's what the idea of blessing is. It has to do with your speech. And so this is talking about your words. So, so how do you build up? How do you bring edification? How do you speak in a manner that doesn't actually harden your enemy, but softens them? That is a great challenge today on social media, is it not? What is it about your words that are actually attractive? What is it about your words that are winsome? What is it about your words that show kindness, show grace, that actually build a person up who hates you versus simply winning the argument and cutting them down? In fact, you all know that it is possible to win the argument but lose the heart of a person, right? As you know, it's very difficult to bless somebody or offer a gentle or a kind word when their only goal is to bring you harm, to see you oppressed, to have difficulty befall you, especially when it's for their own selfish pursuits. But that is what makes loving as Christ loved so difficult, (laughs) yet so important. It is so backwards. It is so not like much of what we see going on today. In fact, the moment that you even disagree with someone on a particular issue now, you're met with nothing but critical words and shame. The amount of hate and aggression coming from people right now is, is pretty high, but I would say the good news then, therefore, is I think as a result of that, it provides an incredible opportunity to actually stand out as a Christian. People are so used to hostility, to defending themselves, to winning the argument, that I think you'd actually throw them off if you actually responded to their angry word with a gentle word of kindness. It is just so not the norm. So in a culture in which everyone is grumbling, everyone's complaining, everyone's fighting about something or how perhaps quick we are to view someone with an opposite perspective as the incarnation of evil and therefore needs to be shamed into silence. Or we just got to speak our mind or put our perspective out there because for some reason we think that our perspective actually matters. Well, Jesus says that love not only has to do with your disposition, not only has to do with seeking another person's good, but in a very tangible way, love is extended through your words. So important. 
may just be one of the most difficult. And so in a day in which your enemy is cursing you, how strange is it to respond with blessing? That is to speak in a manner that'll actually build them up versus simply tear them down, get your vengeance, win the argument. And again, we'll see how some of this works itself out over the next few weeks. But then finally, number four, end of verse 28. Notice he says, and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. Do you have any idea how difficult it is to hate somebody when you're actively praying for them? You should all pick up a book of, a copy of the book of Fox's Book of Martyrs and just read through the prayers of these people toward their persecutors. When you're angry or bitter towards somebody, how hard is it to stay that way when you resolve in your mind and in your heart to be in a state of regular prayer for them? To be in prayer in which you're asking God to bring about goodness for them and especially in terms of their eternal state. In fact, just think about the last person that you were angry or bitter toward. How quick were you to discipline yourself immediately to seek God's active blessing and goodness in their life? That is so difficult. But a simple command. But Jesus here says that the mark of any true Christian is one who in the midst of injustice being committed against them and especially for the name of Christ can still seek God's favor for them. Again, a very difficult thing to do, but as we'll, we'll see, that kind of posture requires that you must remember, hear this, grace. You must remember grace. That grace is going to be, as we'll see, what drives Christian love, that is giving to somebody that which they don't deserve. I think the greatest challenge in loving your enemy is fighting that very strong desire to see justice, true justice, be met. But grace, by definition, is not just. Grace is grace. Grace is giving to somebody, in a positive sense, that which they don't deserve. And so Lord willing, over the next few weeks, we're going to get into all of this as we develop it. But the question for us to ask ourselves is, so where do we land on these things? Perhaps it's not something that we're going to be able to find out truly about ourselves until persecution actually comes, which is just around the corner. But in a more general sense, what is your posture toward people? How quick are you to fight for self? Do you find yourself as one who is loving and seeking good and blessing and praying for your enemy actively? Well, Jesus says that that is the sign that he has actually taken up residence within you. And because you're now controlled and compelled by that very same love that compelled him to save his enemy, which is every single one of us. And so the one who's been given much in the gospel of Jesus Christ and much shall be required of them, as Jesus says. 
And so for the one who's been shown grace and the one who's had the love of Christ shed abroad in their heart, then they're the very one who can read a text like this. And instead of trying to figure out all the ways around it, which is going to be the constant temptation as we go through this chapter, I promise. But instead of trying to figure out all the ways around it, the Christian is the one figuring out how they can most fulfill it. And so that's what Jesus is going to help us understand as we continue on next time. So come back. Let's pray. And so Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to once again spend time in your word. We do thank you for this good word, this basic, simple, yet straightforward word. I pray that in the coming weeks, you'd help us to see your heart. You'd help us to see the true character that you desire us to have in order that we might be more like your son. In a world of vengeance, in a world of retaliation, in a get-even mentality, I pray that you'd help us to stand out as lights in the darkness. Letting our light shine in such a way that men who see our good works and our love might glorify you in heaven. May the world know that we are not like them, but our sons and daughters of the Most High. May you give us a platform for mission. May our love for a hostile world pave the way. And I pray that you would lead us to our enemies. But with the very same grace in which you came to us while we were yet your enemies. And yet through your love, delivered us. May that be our heart and may that be what defines us in this new year. And so I do ask these things and ask that you grant them as we now sing praises for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.